Good morning. Welcome, welcome to you here in the room with us. Welcome to those of you joining us online this morning. It is good to be with you. On this day in the year 269 AD, Pastor Valentine would not recant his faith, though tortured to within an inch of his death, and so the Emperor Claudius had him, had him beheaded. And in honor of him, we have given you a cookie. <laughs> Today is Valentine's Day. It's super good to be with you. What's that? If you're in the room. If you are at home, reach under your couch and the crumbs there are for you. Uh, that's good. And, uh, but we're glad to be with you. It's good to be back. We were gone last week. Holden did a superb job uh, leading last week. So thanks to him. Thanks to the team. Yeah, look at that. They're full... I don't, I don't even get cheered anymore. Oh, okay. We need to leave more often so that they, so today, today is Valentine's Day. I'm super glad to be with you. Um, can I invite you to stand for the reading of scripture while we uh, go to worship this morning? Dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Father, we are so grateful for your love this morning that is steadfast, unending, unshakable. It is only by your love that uh, our lives carry on the way they do. And so we give you thanks for your presence here among us. As we turn our hearts and minds toward you today, uh, we just want to celebrate your love for us and pray and sing our love back to you just in this moment as we will do literally forever. And so come be among us, Holy Spirit, as we turn our hearts and minds toward you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Go ahead and wave to someone next to you and then you can have a seat. Well, good morning. We are so glad to be with you, whether that's here in the room or if you're joining us online. Um, and happy Valentine's Day. Obviously, the tenants are we're here for it. Jack has his Chewbacca shirt on that says, I choose you. Kyle, Kyle says that everyone who's not wearing red needs to leave. That would be sad for you. <laughs> I don't think you want that. Um, well, good morning. Welcome. Um, if you don't already receive um, our Reconnect emails or our text messages and you'd like to kind of keep up with what's happening here at Regen, um, I'd invite you to fill out on the black table on your way out is um, a card that says hey on it. You can just put down your email, um, your phone number, and we'll sign you up for those lists. If you're joining us online, you should be um, getting our digital communication card, or if you're here in the room too. Either way, we'd invite you to fill that out. And especially if you'd like us to be praying for you, the oversight team prays over those each week, and so we would love um, and feel honored to pray for you if there's something that's going on. Um, so feel free to fill that out and let us know how we can be praying for you this week. Um, speaking of prayer, coming up on Wednesday the 17th, this Wednesday, is our all-church day of prayer. And there's two pieces that I want to make sure we feel like there maybe has been some confusion. So the first piece is we want to fill the whole day with prayer. So there are 15-minute time slots. You can either sign up here in the back or online. 
and you can pray from wherever you're at. Just take that 15 minutes, pray. There's a prayer guide if you're not sure how to spend that 15 minutes. We'll help you with that. So that's piece one. Piece two is we're going to end the day. It's also Ash Wednesday. So we're going to be having an Ash Wednesday service that is here on here and will be streamed online. If you'd like to come, we want you to register just like we do for Sunday mornings. So um, you can go on, register for that. There'll be some traditional Ash Wednesday pieces to that, but then there'll also be kind of our normal day of prayer worship um, pieces to that as well. So and that is 7 p.m. this Wednesday. So make sure you register for that so we know that you're coming if you haven't already. And then starting um, March 1st, I'm going to be doing a women's Bible study. It's going to be Priscilla Shire's um, study of Elijah. And so the big thing is if you want to do that and you want me to order your book, I need to know by tomorrow um, because I'm going to put that order in so we make sure we have them and I can get them back to you by the 1st. So um, let me know. You can sign up online. You can talk to me. You can message me. You can catch me here afterwards. And then um, on the 1st, Kyle's also going to be starting a men's theology club for about eight weeks on um, every time I blink. Not the way it's supposed to be, a book on sin. Very exciting, very fun. Um, so let Kyle know if you're a guy and want to join that um, theology club. And I think that those are, oh, and then our Naturally Supernatural Conference is coming up March 5th and 6th. So go ahead and register for that online. It's an opportunity just to find out more about what we're kind of leaning into here at Regen as it relates to Holy Spirit and um, just what he wants to do through us. So we'd invite you to join us for that as well. So um, if you would, we're going to pray our giving liturgy, so that's going to show up here on the screen, so I'd invite you to join me in praying that. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money, that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Would you stand while we continue to worship? Just kind of be in the love of God for a minute. Feel like the pastor's reminded, abide in me and I in you. Abide in my love. Just makes me think that it's that there are some in our in our gathering this moment, either here or online, that are um denying God the ability to love them, which is a strange way of putting it. But like there's a, a preemptive rejection of what God wants to give. And, and my friends, I just want to let you know that you're loved this morning. Father, we know your love for us because of Jesus. 
you've given us the Holy Spirit. You have poured your love into our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that 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 pouring this morning would bathe wounds and bring healing. I pray that there would be refreshment where strength is lacking. I pray that it would bring a humility where there is kind of this prideful puffing up. A steadfastness where there's some waywardness that we would receive your love afresh today. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you open our ears? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat and grab your Bible, my buddy. You're my hero. Thank you so much. <clears throat> We're going to be in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And uh, I have on the top of my notes prayer avalanche, which I don't think is what I meant to write. I think that might be an autocorrect. I think it was supposed to say, say prayer available, not prayer avalanche. So uh, our oversight team will be uh, kind of across the hall. There's a little room. Our oversight team will be there after our gathering today. If you'd like to be prayed for in any way, we would love to do that with you. So we're going to be in Acts 11. A few weeks ago, we kind of done this out of order, haven't we? A few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 10, and then I left and Holden went backwards to Acts chapter 9, and now we're jumping back to Acts chapter 11. And in Acts chapter 10, we watched Peter enter into the house of Cornelius, and we reflected on the life and teaching of Galileo Galilei, who studied and taught what was true the whole time, that the sun is at the center of our solar system, the earth, not the earth. That teaching was part of a cultural revolution, a cultural shift we call the Copernican Revolution. And really it was a revolution sparked by the fact that what was true the whole time is just now made plain to everyone. And Peter, as he steps into Cornelius's house, he sparks a similar shift through a similar rediscovery of what had been true the whole time. God's plan from the very beginning had been in to include Gentiles, non-Jews, into his covenant family. That blessing that he had intended for Gentiles had now come in Jesus the Messiah. And as Peter proclaims the gospel to Gentiles, and as he eats with them, he sparks a similar revolution, and just like Galileo, gets into a little bit of trouble. So look with me at Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. If you're new to Regen, we tend to binge watch whole books of the Bible at a time. So we're kind of binge watching the book of Acts. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be teaching on fasting for the entirety of Lent and the different dynamics and reasons Scripture gives us for fasting, some practices for fasting. It should be really fun. Acts chapter 11, verse 1 says, Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back, at, back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers, otherwise in some translations, the party of the circumcision, 
they criticized him, saying, You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them. In Acts 10, Cornelius, he's a Gentile, he's a Roman officer, he places his faith in Jesus. And as he places his faith in Jesus, so does his immediate family and his children and and their servants and their servants' children. His whole household comes to faith in Jesus. And it turns out that the Holy Land in this moment is a lot like Trumbull County. News travels fast. Here in Trumbull County, a secret is just something we tell people one at a time. Right? And so uh, news gets back to Jerusalem that of this revival among the Gentiles. And when Peter returns, he's in hot water. And the Jewish believers are scandalized. Not that Gentiles have placed their faith in Jesus. They are scandalized because Peter has entered the home of Gentiles to eat with them. The comparison is intentional here. What the, what the Jewish believers say, these party of the circumcisions, they say, you entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, are direct quotes of what the Pharisees say to Jesus. In Luke chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 15, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of eating with sinners and entering their homes. Luke is building an intentional comparison between the party of the circumcision. Let me, let me explain a little bit again, because this is important, that at this point in the church, the predominant, the, the, the majority of the church are Jewish people who have put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They are Jewish people that have put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and there is a subset of that group that thinks it is important that we continue to follow the Old Testament law, that we continue to follow the law of Moses in our pursuit of Jesus. And this hyper-conservative, Torah-observing group of Christians are scandalized that Peter, a Jew, has done something that no Jew ever does, which is enter into a Gentile's home and eat with them. Listen, there is a divide, there is a gulf between Jews and Gentiles in the cultural moment in front of us that is closely akin to, for example, the Jim Crow South. A separateness, a bias, an isolation from one group to the other. And now Peter is breaking the rules. And and what's interesting is while there's a similarity between the circumcision party's behavior and the Pharisees, there's also a difference. There is a difference between how the Jews in Jerusalem respond to Samaritans receiving the gospel, pretty much thumbs up, to now Gentiles receiving the gospel, pretty much thumbs down. And, and, and here's one of the things that I have learned, is that when you start something new, when you start to reach new people, there will always, always, always be somebody grumbling and complaining about it. There will always, always be the older brother who refuses to come into the party. In other words, if you aren't making religious people upset, you're probably not doing it right. To defend his actions... Peter repeats all of the events of Acts chapter 10, and that's in verses 4 through 17, which let me just read quickly, because if you weren't here, just to kind of get it fresh in our head. So Peter in verse 4 says, he says, Peter told them exactly what happened. I was in the town of Joppa, and while I was praying, I went into a trance, and I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles, and birds. In other words, animals that he was, permit, he was forbidden to eat by kosher laws. So, you know, barbecue, bacon, 
lobster, iguana. Okay, the missionaries in the room said it was good, so we will review that at another point. Um, Verse 7, and I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, I replied, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. Verse 10, this happened three times before, I set, before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. Verse 11, just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here, other Jewish Christians, accompanied me and we soon entered the home of the man who sent for us. By the way, interesting, six brothers, double the amount of witnesses required by the law of Moses. Interesting fact. He told us, verse 13, how the angel had appeared to him in his home and he had told him, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter and he will tell you how you and everyone in our household can be saved. Verse 15, as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's word and he said, John, baptize with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to stand in God's way? Now, let's stop and ask a question. Why is there so much repetition? Why are all of the events in Acts chapter 10 repeated in, in Acts chapter 11? While Peter, uh, well, Luke, excuse me, Luke, the author of the, of the book of Acts, he was just a little short on his word count when he needed to submit his final paper. So he thought, I'll just copy and paste this section and see if anybody notices. No. In the Bible, in in biblical times, there was not a way, if I want to indicate something is important to you and something I have written to you, what do I do? I bold it, I italicize it, I, I underline it, I highlight it, I put it in a different font, I make it bigger. There's no convention for that in Luke's day, so what do we do? We repeat it. And in, in Luke, uh, Luke in Acts 10 and in Acts 11 is in a series of repetition, talking about repetition, do you notice that Peter tells us, I got this vision three times? Do you notice that we're constantly hearing about Cornelius' vision and Peter's vision? By the way, Steph's point on this, Steph's point on this is that Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter is given a chance to tell Jesus he loves him three times, and so Peter gets the vision three times. Good job, babe. Luke's insistence and this ongoing repetition, Luke's insistence is his way of making it as plain as he possibly can that the inclusion of the Gentiles into the covenant family of Jesus is legit. It's what was always supposed to happen. Since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way when the Gentiles put their faith in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues. That's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2, which is not, by the way, to say it's what needs to happen every time. Peter's speech is used by God to change hearts and minds. Peter's speech that emphasizes not the will of man, but the initiative of the Holy Spirit. It changes hearts and minds in verses, in verse 18, it says, when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Just stop for a second. I don't tend to consider it a privilege to repent of my sins. 
Peter calls it a, a they, they call it a privilege. He says they stopped objecting, and that's generally true, although there's a few within the circumcision party that will continue to make trouble up and including Acts 15 when they have the Jerusalem Council to decide what role the law of Moses will play in the way of Jesus. But really, the, the party of the circumcision, the Judaizers is what they're called elsewhere, will cause a problem throughout the New Testament era. Uh, they're addressed in Galatians, they're addressed in Ephesians, they're addressed over and over again. But then I like what Luke does in verse 19. Go down there with me. Because while the believers are scandalized by Peter's behavior and all the sorts of things that happen in Acts 10, it turns out what happened in Acts 10, what they're talking about in Acts 11, has already been happening. The second half of Acts 11 is a living, breathing example of what happened in the first half of Acts 11. Look at verse 19. Meanwhile, <clears throat> the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death, rewind back to Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death, it leads to kind of a scattering of the church. They don't just run and hide, they run and get to work. Those who had been scattered during the persecution of Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, I like the however people, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Listen, everybody in, is back in Jerusalem having a debate about whether or not we should be reaching this or that kind of person. Meanwhile, I like that. I think it's Luke kind of flicking somebody in the forehead. Meanwhile, other people are just out there doing it. Other people are just out there doing it. Uh, we're part of a denomination that is doing its best to reach new people and younger people and make disciples. And that is an area of strength for us as a church by the Lord's grace. And so from time to time, uh, we will be invited into some meetings in our denomination to talk about what we're doing and why does that work and how's it going and stuff like that. And uh, one time, uh, like three or four years ago, I was given, we were given an award called the One Matters Award for the work that we did here at Regen in reaching new people. And somebody said, um, while I was being given the award in front of my peers, they said, we should all be asking what it is that Kyle and Stephanie are doing. Um, and I don't tell you this to make myself the hero. I simply tell you to, this story because like our answer to like what are Kyle and Steph doing is kind of like preaching the gospel, investing in people, and doing the work instead of sitting in a room talking about doing the work. Do you see what I mean? There, there, there are always going to be people that just want to talk about the work, and then there's going to be people doing the work. And in verse 21, it says, the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. And the action zooms in on this city called Antioch. It's a large metropolitan city. It's home to a lot of Jews. It's home to a lot of Gentiles. 
It's a climate ripe for the gospel. And by the way, history lesson, Antioch will become the most influential city in the early Christian movement until about 400 AD. Uh, in AD 70, the, Rome, uh, the Romans come and they destroy the temple and there's basically no official Christian presence in the city of Jerusalem from that point on. And so Antioch kind of becomes the center of activity. Uh, and in fact, the way that you and I read the Bible is directly derived what's called the Antiochian school of hermeneutics. There was a debate between the city of Alexandria and Egypt and Antioch in the first 300 century, the first 300 years, not first 300 centuries, because we don't have 300 centuries to count yet. First 300 years of Christianity and Antioch forms the way that you and I read scripture. So anyway, we have this church in Antioch and this church in Antioch is unique we have not seen a church like we see in Antioch, and the reason that the church is unique, it is the first multi-ethnic church of the early Christian movement. It is the first church where Jews and Gentiles worship together. Now, back in Jerusalem, most of the Christians, in fact, all of the Christians are Jews who have become what we might call Messianic Jews. They have placed their faith in Jesus the Messiah. There are Samaritans who are genetically related to the Jews who are worshiping with Jews, but they're still very similar in culture. But here in Antioch, we have something never before seen in the early Christian movement, which is Gentiles and Jews worshiping together. This is a new thing. When new things happen, the church in Jerusalem sends somebody trusted to go check it out. They send a leader to evaluate what's going on. That happened among the Samaritans uh, when Peter and John go. Here in verses 22 through 24, they say that they send Barnabas. Barnabas, a good man full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, goes to Antioch on behalf of the Jerusalem church to check it out. And because nothing like this has ever happened in the history of the church, never before have we had this uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians hanging out in the same community, their, their cultures clashing, their ways of life clashing, because we've never had this before, because this is a unique thing, we need a unique kind of leader. And so Barnabas gets on a boat and goes up to a city called Tarsus and gets a guy named Saul. Saul, who we've not seen since the end of Acts chapter 9, which means 10 years have passed and here's Saul, born Jewish, a Jew of Jews, zealous, knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand, totally understands the way of thinking and ethos of the Jewish culture of his time, yet somebody that was also raised in a Gentile city and in a Gentile culture who has been given a direct call from the Lord to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he's the guy we need to lead this new thing. Paul and Barnabas stay in the church in Antioch for a year, Verse 25, it says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And then look at the parenthetical. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. They've been called believers. In the book of Acts, they've been called followers of the way, which is the one that I like. But here... They are called Christians. And notice the passive voice. It does not say they called themselves Christians. What does it say? They were called Christians. Other people in the city of Antioch called them Christians, and they called them Christians because they didn't have a word for them. We don't have a word for these Jews that are also not Jews and these Gentiles that hang out with them. We don't have a word 
for these people that won't get the word Christos, Christ, Messiah, off of their lips. We don't have a word for this multi-ethnic community that is living as an extended spiritual family in our city, taking care of the poor, taking care of one another, eating together, sharing all that they have. We don't have a word for them. Let's call them Christianoi. Let's call them little Christs. And let's poke at them while we do it. It's, it's not an honorific. It's a mockery. We, we mock what we don't understand. And so they, they mock Christians. And yet Christians decide, this is a good name. I want to be a little Messiah. I want to be a person around whom the culture of heaven is breaking in. I want to be a person around whom the way of Jesus is made plain. This mockery, this label, it spreads quickly. By the time we get to 1 Peter, it appears that it's common for the people of the way of Jesus to be called Christians in whatever city they're in. But look at then what happens just briefly at verses 27 through 30. This is kind of a footnote. During this time, some prophets traveled up from Jerusalem to Antioch. There's no prophetic community yet within the church in Antioch, so they're borrowing from Jerusalem. One of them named Agabus stood up in the meeting in the gathering and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. It was. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting the gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, this church, it's young, but this church, which is aspiring to be like Jesus, who for our sake became poor, they gather funds to bless churches in Judea and in Jerusalem. One scholar notes that a communal transgeographic sacrifice of this nature was extraordinary in antiquity. This is not a normal thing. It's not a normal thing for people of one area of the world to collect money to send to another area of the world to be used by people they do not know. And this giving is important. Luke includes this in this because this Gentile, uh, Jewish, multi-ethnic church, the thing that we've never seen before, He's showing how it really is like the original church, how it has similarity to the church that started in Jerusalem, because the church in Jerusalem, what were they known for? They had a history of selling property and possessions to give to those in need. And so here's this multi-ethnic church in Antioch doing the same thing. It is common wherever the family of Jesus is present to collect money to bless a part of the family of Jesus in another world. Why? Because we're family. This is why we collected and gave to Cuba right? And as the early church, as the early church steps out into the unknown, as they begin to reach new people and start new communities in a territory that is both foreign and familiar, they come to be known as Christians. They come to be, be known as people who bear the name of Jesus. And so here we are. Here we are. Here it comes. And the worst pandemic of 100 years, the worst civil unrest of 50 years, the most anxious election season in living memory. And in this cultural moment, you and I have been called to bear the name of Jesus. You and I have been called to carry the name of Jesus into a mission field that is foreign yet familiar. You and I have been called to carry the name of Jesus into our neighborhoods and networks. We have resolved 
as a spiritual family, that as much as it relies on us, we will give an opportunity to everyone in our neighborhoods, in our networks, in our families, in our workplaces, we will give all of them an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. Why? Because we bear the name of Jesus. We are little Christ. The, the culture of the kingdom of heaven is around us. And we aren't going to keep it to ourselves. No, we are going to take it into this new territory. This new territory that while we haven't changed our address, has drastically changed. As we emerge from 2020, we are stepping into the unknown. The challenges of the last year linger with us. And I just briefly want to outline seven of them. Seven challenges as we bear the name of Jesus. I have this on a slide for you guys back there. The first challenge is individualism. One sociologist, the author of a book called Bowling Alone, uh, last name Putnam, he studies the hollowing, what he calls the hollowing out of American life. He's done studies on community in our country, and recent studies show that 40% of Americans have zero to one confidants. 40% of Americans have zero to one confidants. 40% 40 40 of them have no one to share the hard things of life with. On the flip side of that, individualism is found in a culture that says, be yourself, you do you, you speak your truth. And in the midst of it, we are trying to be a church. We are not trying to be a church. We are trying to be a spiritual family knit together in ties of love and a culture that says my needs are always more important than the group and a culture that says truth is irrelevant. We are trying to be a family. Speaking of individualism, there are idolatrous ideologies, ideas that a generation ago, uh, by the way, I'm borrowing a lot of this from my friend John Mark Comer, and by friend, I mean I listen to his podcast a lot, so I feel like I know him. Uh, ideal, uh, ideas that a generation ago were just theories as to how the human condition worked have now been ascribed to with a religious fervor. On the right and the left, people are ascribing to ideologies that answer the questions of origin, morality, meaning, and destiny. Questions that, uh, ideologies that define good and evil and give meaning to reality, instruct behavior. In other words, people on the right and the left are finding a religious experience and adherence to ideologies like critical theory on the left, like QAnon on the right. And the word that the Bible would use for our impassioned adherence to these ideologies is idolatry. And these ideologies, on the right and the left, seek to usher in a kingdom without the king. And as a result, they are leading to tribalism and to splintering and fracturing in our society, accelerated by the frantic increase of moral relativism as we splinter into individual tribes and groups Moral relativism is picking up steam and growing in influence all the time. And we have always lived in a pluralistic society in America, and I think that's good. I, I think it keeps our moral lens sharp. But as our moral compass as a country shifts, in particular as it relates to sexuality and gender, we have to work even hard, even harder to live on the mental map of reality that Jesus carries inside his mind. We have to 
work even harder to find a moral true north in Jesus. All of this too is accelerated by the digital revolution. We, we, we talk a lot about the dangers of social media. I wrote a book in 2012 about the dangers of social media, but nobody has put it best, better than Ronald Rollheiser who says, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. And in the process, the issue now isn't just distraction and addiction. It's, it's tribalism, it's groupthink, it's echo chambers, it's truth decay, and it's cancel culture. It's outrage and it's anxiety. Uh, people are so mad and so anxious and so tribal, you can't even have a conversation anymore. All of this is increasing political polarization and tribalism. We are more divided, some scholars think, we are more divided as a nation now than we have been since the 10 years leading up to the Civil War. David French says we are closer to secession than we have ever been. We live in the middle of a culture war, and hear me, both sides are recruiting and seeking our loyalty to take our loyalty from the multi-ethnic family of Jesus where he is Lord to give it to someone else. And living in the center of this tribalism and political polarization is exhausting. The 24-hour news cycle lives, uh, leaves us in a constant state of vigilance where we are tired, worn out, and we are too burnt out to live well. We are asked by our culture to live at a pace that just isn't sustainable. We are unable to find joy to meet our basic needs, not to mention the needs of others, because all we have at the end of the day is enough energy to click next on Netflix. And then injustice, which is the greatest social issue of our time. There's a great deal of talk about justice in Christian circles. And without about social justice, I'm grateful for this conversation. I think God's trying to get our attention through this conversation. And yet, much of the talk about social justice in our culture uses a different de dictionary definition than would Jesus or Amos or Micah or Isaiah or Paul. The justice that is being sought by and large in our public square is not the justice of the Bible. We are stepping into a culture, even here in tiny little Warren, here in Northeast Ohio. We are stepping into these, these challenges. But by the way, I am full of hope. The historical global movement of Jesus is doing great. You might not know that if you only follow American Christianity on Twitter or listen to the headlines, but the church in Iran is exploding where it is illegal to proselytize. The church in Cuba and in Southeast Asia and in China is exploding. And even for us, as we become more and more distinct from our culture, the opportunity becomes more and more ripe for us out of that difference to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus. My friends, you and I have been called to such a time as this. Jesus has asked you and I to bear the name of Jesus in this cultural moment. If we're going to step into this new mission field, it takes more than just knowing how the mission field has changed. It 
takes more than just knowing how the mission field is new. We have to become a new kind of Christian and not new as our secular culture redefines new. Let's deconstruct and dismantle uh, Christianity to this progressive form of it. Because again, to quote my buddy John Mark, progressive Christianity is almost always just a stop off to post-Christianity. It's not redefining Christianity on the base of our culture. It is a re-attaining to our roots. It is a radical recommitment to the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus and the works of Jesus. To step faithfully and fruitfully into this new mission field, it, is a ra- it requires a radical commitment to the words and the ways and the works of Jesus. To become the people, as Paul prays, whose roots go down deep into him. To be a Christian in this cultural moment is to radically recommit to the words of Jesus. The Jesus who says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. To be a Christian in this cultural moment, to bear the name of Jesus faithfully and fruitfully, requires us to recommit to the ways of Jesus not to hear what he says as good advice, but a way. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It is a radical recommitment to the works of Jesus to not only hearing what he has to say and living like he lives, but doing the sorts of things that he did. Healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, confronting injustice in the temple, saying, when you fast. Spoiler alert, Jesus' assumption for his people is that they will fast. When you fast, wash your face, anoint your head, that your fasting may not be seen in others by others when you tweet or Instagram selfie your fasting. But by your Father who sees what is done in secret and who will reward you, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. To be a Christian to bear the name of Jesus into this cultural moment at this time and in this place, in this moment, in the now that Jesus has called us to means embracing a mission field that is radically different in that time a long, long ago before I made you wear a mask when you came into this building. 
but it also requires a new kind of Christianity, a new kind of faithfulness and fruitfulness in the way of Jesus that comes from wrapping our lives around the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus and the works of Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, God's people were told, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And I was raised to believe by my grandma, bless her, that that was something we did with our lips. But my friends, it's something we do with our lives. Will we carry the name of Jesus into the unknown with honor and dignity, or will we carry it in vain? Will we succumb to the corrosive pressure of our culture, or will we remain distinct, inviting people into a new and life-giving way, opened by the blood of Jesus? In Ephesians 3, Paul prays, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on earth derives its name, that you would be filled with strength in your inner being, that you would come to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and depth and width to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge, that you would be filled with all his fullness. He said to him, be the glory in the church throughout all generations who is able to work in you far more than we could ask or imagine. Let's bear the name of Jesus together. Amen. Here at Regen, um, one of the things that we want to be so um, attentive to is not just hearing the word of God and walking out and then thinking about what we need to buy at Walmart when we grocery shop. We want to think about what is God inviting us to? What is he um, calling us to? Um, and so it's interesting, this week we've been potty training, and I've been learning a lot about what it means to not be able to be in control of someone. And I've been thinking a lot about how God parents us and how he loves us and, and his heart toward us, even as Kyle is kind of issuing this challenge and this invitation to something that frankly feels hard, at least to me, as I hear him talk about it. It feels a little overwhelming sometimes. And I just keep thinking about God's heart toward us is, um, is one of unconditional love and is one of invitation, but is also one that says, I know a better way. You know, I think of, like every time I invite Jack to use the potty, I'm like, I have a better way for you than dancing around and not making it. Um, and, and I, I don't say that lightly because I, I'm something I'm learning and growing in is to have that patience to walk in love. And so I think I, I, the Father's heart to you today is love and is an invitation to say there is a better way. Sometimes we look at our culture and we think that feels easier. That feels like the path of least resistance. That maybe even feels more loving sometimes. Um, and Jesus stands before us and says, there's a better way, and I don't just have that better way for you, but I have it for the people in your life who don't yet know me. And so um, this morning, I want to ask you what's keeping you from accepting that invitation to the better way. Um, is it people-pleasing? Is it a sense of exhaustion? Like Kyle talked about, there's just too much noise, too many things, too many people, too many voices. Um, is it fear? of the unknown. I feel safe here. I know what to expect, and this feels comfortable. Um, I want to, we're just going to take a minute here. I want you to just ask the Father to highlight for you what's keeping you from stepping into that, and then after a minute, I'll, I'll pray for us, and we'll move on to worship.
Father, we confess that it is easier to scroll on our phone or to click next on Netflix than it is to examine our hearts, than it is to have the courage to share the hope that's within us. Father, we confess um, that often we care more about what other people think of us than we do about their, where, the, where, the, where they will spend eternity, about their eternal destiny. And so, Father, we ask that we would give you, a, that you would give us a heart that is like your heart, that we would love the lost, that we would be bold in the name of Jesus, that we would boldly love other people and boldly say what is true even when it's unpopular. And Father, I pray that as we live in that better way, that we would see um, fruit and fruit that lasts and that we would know that we are walking with you and that there would be such joy in that place. There was a season, again, you know, a thousand COVID years ago that we received communion every week together. And so with it being Valentine's Day and a day when we're thinking about love, I, I wanted to come to the table. And so let me say, if you're watching online, run to the kitchen now <laughs> and grab whatever beverage and whatever snack-like thing will work for you. And to those of you watching online and to those of you in the room, I, it's important for me to remind you that we welcome anyone with a pulse to this table. We welcome anyone with a pulse to this table. Because it is not our table. It is Jesus' table, this Jesus, who out of the Father's love was given to the whole world. Who out of the love that he had for us died for us we are everyone is welcomed to this table to encounter a Jesus who is present in these elements who makes himself known to us and so the way this works is uh, you you want to rip off the part where you see the bread and get that cracker and hold on to it for a second as I tell you that on the night when Jesus was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And that same night he took a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you and for many. I can't but wonder if Jesus thought for Jews and for Gentiles and forgiveness of sins. He said, as often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. The way that the gospel writers tell it is that as Jesus had that meal with them, that he loved them till the last. He loved them to the last. You can just hold on to this throw it in the garbage on our way out. I want to invite you to stand. If you're on the oversight team, could you scamper to the room for prayer? If you need prayer for maybe God's getting your attention with something specific today, or there's just something going on in your life, you need prayer for healing, um, our team would love to pray with you today in the, in the room. But let's, let's close in worship.
there's this passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses says to the people of Israel, God did not choose you because you were the most numerous or the best looking or the strongest nation. So the question is, well, why did he choose us? Because he loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. It's been good to be with you. I love you so much. Hope to see you Wednesday night, Wash Wednesday. Till then, grace and peace.